0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Jesus, we do thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you meet us and you come to us and you uh, fill us with your spirit and your presence. And we just ask this morning that uh, you would pour out your spirit in our midst and teach us uh, help us to um, really hear your voice speak. And Lord, we just, uh, are so thankful for the privilege of being with you and being in your presence. Uh, speak to us now from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in John chapter 7, uh, a rather complicated passage we started looking at uh, last week. And uh, the context of the setting of this passage is the Feast of Shelters, or some translations called the Feast of Tabernacles. And to really understand what happens later in this chapter, uh, it's really important to really understand this, this feast. Uh, Jesus, as we saw last week, uh, avoided coming to the temple, avoided coming to this
1: celebration
0: because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. It wasn't yet time for him to go to the cross. And so he's being very careful and very guarded. But he shows up in the middle of this festival and uh, he has this kind of ongoing dialogue or debate with the crowds that are there and with the religious leaders about who he is. And uh, to really understand what's going on here, you need to understand the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, it will make a lot more sense uh, if, we, if we get a picture of the Feast of Tabernacles. And since probably most of us are far removed from uh, Jewish, Judaistic worship. I want to take just a minute as we begin this morning and explain what would have happened. Uh, and actually we're going to, we're going to reenact part of the celebration. Sadly not the eating part. Okay, it was a feast and it involved a lot of food. Sadly we're, we're, we're doing that part. Well, we'll later, we'll have communion, so we'll have a little bit of food. But, uh, I want to explain and we're going to reenact part of it. The, uh, it was a major feast. There were three major feasts or celebrations throughout the calendar year. This celebration took place in and around October. Uh, it was the time when they were finishing the harvest, so it was largely associated with, with uh, the, the harvest and with Thanksgiving. And so it was a, a celebration with lots of food. It lasted for actually eight days. The, the feast was seven days, but it was so good they always added an extra add on day because it was so much fun. So it was eight days long. Uh, and it's called Feast of Shelters or Tabernacles because they, when it was part of the tradition, they would erect or build these little grass huts. And they would take olive branches and other trees and palms. And uh, pilgrims would come to Jerusalem from all over Israel, Judea, all over actually the Roman world at that time. And they would kind of camp out. Uh, they would build these shelters in the courtyards of the temple. They would build them on housetops. They would build them out in the valley on the uh, Mount of Olives. All over there would be thousands of people with these little, these little kind of temporary little huts that they would build. And they would spend the week uh, sleeping and camping out in these little tabernacles. And the whole point was to commemorate and remember and celebrate God's faithfulness during their wilderness wanderings. When Egypt had come out of of, uh, Egypt and God had led them through the wilderness, it was to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness during all those wilderness wanderings. And so the little grass, uh, well it wasn't grass, the little tree hut, was to remember when they were camping out for those 40 years in the wilderness and how God was faithful with them. And so they would give thanks and they would rejoice and celebrate God's faithfulness, live in these little huts, they would dance. They would sing. They would have festivals at the, at the temple every day. Lots of more eating, songs and music. They would eat some more, get lots of food, lots of celebrating. It was a very joyous, joyous festival and occasion. Uh, and it was all focused on God's great faithfulness, not only in the wilderness, but remembering how God had been faithful equally throughout Israel's history. And uh, at the harvest, they had more to give thanks for, so it was a very uh, happy time, celebrating, rejoicing, giving thanks. Uh, it's interesting, there's a great depiction of this festival in the Old Testament in Nehemiah. And if you know about Nehemiah, he came back and rebuilt Jerusalem after Israel had been in exile. And so for 70 plus years, Jerusalem had been leveled and destroyed. Nehemiah comes back, he rebuilds the city. And they stumble across an old copy of the, of the Bible, of the Old Testament of the law. And in October, they just happen that so they finish the wall, are moving into Jerusalem in October, and they start reading through part of Deuteronomy. And they discover that they should be doing all these things they weren't. And the people were crying, they were lamenting, We've, we haven't been keeping God's law. And, uh, and they discover that it's the time of, of the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what's in Nehemiah chapter 8 on October 9th. The family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, met with Ezra the scribe to go over the law in greater detail, and especially the passage that they were studying was about the Feast of Tabernacles. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He said that a proclamation should be made throughout the towns and in Jerusalem telling the people to go to the hills and get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed in the law. So the people went out and cut branches and used them to build shelters on the the roofs of their houses, in their courtyards, in the courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So, everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Okay, so that's kind of a picture of uh, capturing this. And in chapter 9, we'll read in a bit, uh, they actually pray as the Israelites, as as Nehemiah and the Israelites renew this celebration. They actually prayed this, prayed long, I won't read the whole thing, but profound prayer. And one of the things that they pray about in this prayer, and one of the things that was a theme of this festival, was not only the tabernacles and living in the wilderness, but they always were drawn to the story of God pouring out water from the rock. And As they remembered Israel's wanderings, uh, they would remember the time when Israel was without water. And uh, they complained to Moses, and God said "Go to Moses, go strike the rock, and he struck the rock, and out gushes water. And God, on two different occasions, provides water from the rock miraculously. And so, as part of the celebration, on the climax day of the festival, the last day of the festival, they would have this water-pouring ceremony, where they would celebrate this great event, and they would remember it with great fanfare. And this is, this is what they would do. This is the part we're going to re So take close notes because you all have a part. And I'll explain your parts in a minute. Uh, they have this water pouring ceremony uh, to remember God's faithful provision, his abundance, his sustaining them in the wilderness. And uh, uh, the way they would do it is this. They would go to the pool of Siloam outside the city. And they would draw in a pitcher, and I have our pitcher here. Um, There's something a little different than this pitcher. Actually, the pitcher they used was gold. I was fresh out of gold pitchers, so this was the next best, best thing. They would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they would fill their pitcher full of water. Um, so we have our pitcher full of water. And the priest would, would carry this back from the Pool of Siloam to the water gate, And at the water gate, as it came through, they would have a guy there with a shofar, the ram's horn, would blow the ram's horn. And when he blew the ram's horn, people in the streets, lining the streets, it was kind of a parade, procession coming along, would all shout three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Okay? They would be carrying, as they shouted this, all the people in the crowd, well, probably just the men only, They'd be carrying in one hand an orange or a citrus fruit of some kind to celebrate Thanksgiving for the harvest, because there was that time they would harvest citrus fruit, dates, figs, those sorts of things. Then they would also have in their other hand um, a bunch of twigs. Now, they're supposed to have olive branches. You know, I was fresh out of a olive tree, so I had to settle for some Thai weed, all right? Okay. So, And this is called, the, if, if you're taking notes, this is called the lulap, The Lulab. And it was to kind of celebrate their, um, their little uh, uh, symbol of these little shelters. Okay? They got this on one hand. They got the orange thing there saying, Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Okay, got that? And this parade of the pitcher of water and the priest would come to the city. And at the sound of the shofar, in the temple, the uh, temple choir would begin to sing. And they would start singing what's known as the Hallel, which was uh, Psalms 115 through 118. And we don't have time this morning to read all that. But uh, it's Psalms about God's provision, about thanksgiving, about God's faithfulness. Give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. And uh, the choir would be singing this. So this procession would come into the temple and the choir is singing about God's faithfulness and they're cheering, the Thanks to the Lord. And there's, you know, you got to remember there's thousands of people. The city would swell with sometimes 100, 200, 300,000 people as they're celebrating this great pitcher of water coming in. Okay, they're really excited about this pitcher of water. And they would come into the temple and then they would actually proceed up through the outer courts into the inner court to the altar. And they would circle the altar and then they would pour out this water at the base of the altar. And it was really symbolic of God's pouring out the water at the rock, of his abundant provision, and they celebrated this all with great fanfare. Um, when, when Nehemiah prayed on the, at, the, at the festival, this is what he prayed. He says, You gave Israel bread from heaven when they were hungry, and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go out and take possession of the land you had shown them. And he goes on and he says, They committed terrible blasphemies, but in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of clouds to led them forward day by day. The pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. And you sent your good spirit to instruct them. And you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. Okay, so that's the whole thing. And they're celebrating this faithfulness of God pouring out the water. Um, in addition, not only did it look back, but it also looked forward. And many of the prophets spoke of this. In fact, uh, oftentimes in connection with, with the Feast of Tabernacles. In um, Zechariah, Zechariah writes, On that day, the sources of life, looking for, he's looking forward now to the great day of the Lord. On that day, the spring day of the Lord, sources of light will no longer shine. There will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. Uh, on that day, life giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half towards the Dead Sea and half towards the Mediterranean, flowing continuously both in summer and winter. In the end, the enemies of Jerusalem who survived the plague will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the King, the Lord of heaven's armies and to celebrate the festival of shelters, or the festival of tabernacles. Any nation in the world that refuses to come to Jerusalem to worship, the king, the lord of heaven's armies, will have no reign. Uh, Egypt and the other nations will be punished if they don't go to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Okay, so we've got to know how to do this, because right? someday, the great day of the Lord is going to come, and all people from all nations will celebrate this. Okay, so we're going to practice a bit this morning, because we don't want you to feel... Lost when the day comes, all right. And and remember as we do this, so we're going to ask the worship band to come back up. We're going to they're going to be our choir. And as we do this, we're going to we're going to enter into this celebration and this festival that they had. And we're going to think about God's pouring out His blessing, His provision in our life, sustaining us. And also looking forward to the time when God will ultimately fulfill His promise. To pour out, as we'll see, the Holy Spirit, which he's done in us. As a river flowing out. Okay, and someday that river will flow out from Jerusalem all over into the earth. As his spirit and his truth, his life in water is received by people around the world. And we're seeing that happen in our day. Okay, So this is how it's going to work. First of all, I need volunteers. And uh, we don't have Sunday school going on, so I know I've got lots of, or some... Uh, kids, so if you're a student, you know, you're a student, first grade, to sixth grade, eighth grade, whatever, you're going to be my parade. So I need you to come up and you're going to get an orange or a leaf. And I, I'm going to designate one of you as my water carrier. Okay, so you guys come up and line up here. You're going to be our parade. Okay, and you get an orange or you get a leaf. Okay, how would you like to be my water carrier? If you look strong. Then don't drop it. Okay, it's very important. And when we get yeah. when okay, okay, we need more. We need more parade people. So for me, I can tell you guys, uh, kids. We need more parade people because we have a full We need lots of parade. Okay, all of you students. Okay, actually, you you can have an orange and a and a, a leaf. Okay, well, your job is. And this is important. Yeah, older kids, high school kids, you can do this if you want. Okay, if not, we'll just have to pass out the oranges around the aisle. Okay, now, this is important, guys. you guys know what a shofar is? It's a trumpet blast. Well, it's kind of an odd-sounding trumpet blast because it was a ram's horn. When the ram's horn blows, you have to shout, Thanks to the Lord. And everybody, we'll all help you, okay? So, we're going to do it three times. So, we'll practice it just once. Ready? One, two, three... Thanks you for the Lord. Okay, see, they're going to help, so you don't have to be bashful. Okay? Yeah, we can pass out some of that, too. All right, so we listen to the shofar. And then what you guys are going to do, uh, after that, the ba- the, the band's going to start playing and we're going to sing. And I want you guys to do is two laps around around the, the the middle square here, okay? While we sing. Got it? And you're the leader because you got the water. All right? And you guys are all going to be... Give me thanks to the Lord. We're the temple choir. All right? And after two laps, you can come back up here again. As we get done singing, we'll pour the water out and give thanks. Okay? All right. All we have to do now is listen for the shofar to blow. It's going be very quiet because the shofar is water gate far away. So we'll listen. Thank, thank the Lord. Gift. Thank the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are indeed faithful. And what a great reminder of your faithfulness to Israel, that when they were without anything, and they felt that they would die in the desert uh, with nothing to drink, you met them and abundantly provided everything, pouring out a gushing river of water to show your great love and faithfulness. And throughout the desert, you are there continually to provide and sustain life, to give them life not only physically but spiritually. Lord, we praise you that you do that for us today. You are the sustaining uh, river in our life. And even as we pour out this water, we do it to remember and commemorate your great love and faithfulness to us. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I'm gonna have you stand up here on this chair so everybody can see the water. I'll hold it. And you come up here on this chair. Stand up. You know, stand up. Because we don't have to be dramatic. We want, we want dramatic <coughs> flair. Again, just pour it out into the bucket. Try to get most of it in the bucket if possible. You feel high? You feel right? There you go. All right. Give thanks to the Lord. Hey Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Good job. Okay, you guys can sit down and you can keep, you can eat your orange. You, you, can, you can probably eat the weed, but I don't know. I got it at the grocery store, so it probably is edible. I don't know. Okay. So that's what's happening. And uh, keep that image in mind. Okay, because it'll make more sense as we go through this passage. Um, the really good stuff is at the end, but before we get to the really good stuff, um, the you know the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem, the people there, were in the midst of celebration and uh, we're we're celebrating, we're we're doing this water festival, but in between, there was a lot of discussion about Jesus. And they were really trying to figure him out. Uh, And as we read through this passage, we'll see they were asking questions. They are trying to figure out and decide about Jesus. Is he the Messiah? Is he this prophet? Is he a great teacher? Uh, Who is he? Uh, They're also wrestling with uh, you know, in, in response to who he is, what should we do with him? Are, are we to follow him? Are we to make him king? Are we to, you know, go to arms against Rome? Uh, what, what's our response to this, this Jesus? There have been many claims of messiahs and prophets and great teachers, and most uh, of them, all of them, had proven to be false. And so they're wondering what to do with Jesus. As we see at the beginning of chapter verse 25, where we'll start, the, uh, the, the leaders had already made up their minds. And they had decided he was a threat, and they had already made clear that their intention was to kill him. But that intention was so clear that in, in verse 25, it says some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other,
1: isn't this the man
0: they're trying to kill? There's no secret. There's no secret what they had concluded about Jesus. But the crowd was still trying to make up their mind. Who is he? And finally, the the third thing they are trying to wrestle with is how how do we decide? How do we make up our minds? How do we work out this process of who Jesus is? Um, It's good questions because the the truth is, since then, every generation has had to wrestle with these same issues. Uh, As people come in contact with claims about Jesus... They have to decide who he is and what they will do with him. And the question is, really for all of us as we, as we consider this question, as well as how we pose it to others who we want to consider the claims of Christ, is how do you decide? Uh, how do you make up your mind about Jesus? Um, well, throughout this, this chapter and throughout history, and throughout the world today, the most common way to decide, the common way to approach this is to decide on Jesus from human reasoning, to, to apply logical thought to figure out Jesus, right? Uh, they, they have several paths, but and as you look through this, we'll see some of the ways that they are trying to figure him out. But all of them basically start with their own knowledge and try to figure out based on their own knowledge if Jesus could be true or not if he's worthy of following, if he is what he claimed to be. Um, And this knowledge is based on a lot of preconceived ideas. Uh, They have this knowledge base, this pool of information that they are logically analyzing. Uh, And it's based on things like their preconceived ideas about the Messiah. They have studied the Bible and and they have some ideas about what the Messiah should be.
1: So they're making their decision
0: based on these ideas about what's the... What the Messiah should look like, where he should come from, the kind of things they thought he should do if he were really the Messiah. Uh, they have ideas about who Jesus is. Uh, actually, not all of them very accurate, but they have preconceived ideas about what they think they know about Jesus, about who he is, where he came from, uh, what what he's about. Um, they they have this knowledge about their own theology. About their own understanding of the Bible and Scripture, and uh, and then finally they've got they, they weigh the weight and opinions of their own leaders. Um, so it's all based on their own knowledge. It's all all based on outside information. Um, you know we do this often with people. Uh, maybe we don't admit it, but have you ever seen somebody that you've never met, at, but you come into a room or into a situation? And you see some who, somebody who has a certain look or appearance, and you decide things about them based on knowledge you already possess. Not about them, but just knowledge you possess in general. So if you see somebody who's wearing ratty clothes, they're dirty, they maybe haven't bathed for a while, they have strange, strange hair, uh, they, uh, you know, maybe they smell bad, uh, you may make some decisions. You may make some assumptions about this person, without ever talking to them, without ever asking them a question, based on your knowledge of other people you've known who look like that.
1: You might think, yeah, they're
0: homeless. They're a bum. They're an alcoholic. They're a beggar. Uh, most of you would think they're somebody I'm going to avoid, right? You probably wouldn't even give them a hug. You might go up and give them like a hundred odd. Uh, feel sorry for them. But you, you you make a mind about this person based on knowledge you possess, because you have everything or nothing to do with them. Or you can do it on the other side. Maybe you go into a situation and you see somebody who's very wealthy. And maybe they put in a fancy car and they get out and they're dressed, you know, to kill big fancy jewelry, large jewelry, you know, not little thing, large jewelry, you know. And... You, and uh, the big, you know, sunglasses that cover the whole face kind of thing, and big hair. And you've known people like this. And so you make judgments based on previous knowledge. And you assume that they're rich, they're probably a snob, they're stuck up, they think they're better than everybody else. Without ever speaking to this person, you know, we make prejudgments, right? So that, in essence, is what the crowd was doing about Jesus. Based on knowledge they had, other outside of him
1: they were making
0: up their minds about him and they were wrestling with who he was not by personally engaging and talking to him but standing back at a distance and looking at him based on this knowledge and information they possessed and trying to decide about him it wasn't going very well okay? they were confused, they were divided they were coming up with all kinds of crazy theories and ideas about who he was and what I want to do real briefly is just read through their discussions and highlight how they're wrestling with this, and really show how human knowledge, how faulty it is. How faulty this is based, our decision about Jesus, based on our own logic and reasoning. Okay? I do think there's a place for logic and reasoning. I'm not saying we shouldn't think, and I'll explain later, so hang with me. But notice where thinking gets them, where their logic and human reason gets them. Verse 26, it says... They said, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public and our leaders aren't saying anything to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. Uh, what do they mean by that? Well, not from heaven. They know that he comes from where? Galilee. Hey, okay, what's Galilee. Well, Galilee is like the end of the universe. It's like the arm of, you know, the Middle East, okay? Nothing good comes from Galilee. Okay, we know where he comes from means this guy's a hick from Nowheresville, right? A uh, hick being translated, for those of you who aren't American, it means like, help me out, how do you translate? Yeah, country bumpkin, yeah, that helps. That Colorado. <laughs> Colorado, yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, if you were in Colorado, you would think he was a Texan. Ha, ha. Observe. we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear, and no one will know where he comes from. They had these crazy ideas, these preconceived ideas about the Messiah. And they had this sense, this this, uh, theory, this idea, this theology or doctrine, that the Messiah was just going to magically appear. They didn't really know where he came from. He would just show up one day. The interesting thing is, three years earlier, about two and a half years earlier, Jesus did just show up one day and started doing miracles and doing what the Messiah would do. And you know what? They didn't accept him then either. Okay? Now he's been on the scene for two and a half years, uh, and sure, now they know him. But you know, if a Messiah came, would it be any different? It couldn't be any different. Okay? Uh, but that was their preconceived idea of how this would work, and somehow Jesus didn't quite match that or fit into that. Uh, they thought they understood his family line and where he came from, and he had preconceived ideas about what that meant. We'll see that in a minute as well. Verse 31. Many of them the crowd of the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man does? Um, again, this is a thinking process. Well, the Messiah must do miracles. They must do a lot of miracles. That works for some people. But the people kept saying, well, he hasn't done enough miracles. You know, they said, to Jesus, if you are really the Messiah, show us a sign. And okay, he asked that right after he said the 5,000. It wasn't enough of a sign. But the reality is that, you know, if the, if the Messiah does a miracle, you either believe and accept one miracle as a sign from God, or, if you don't, a hundred miracles won't be enough. How many miracles can be enough? He had done hundreds of miracles. He had healed, he had he had cast out demons. He had walked on water. He had fed four thousand. He had fed five thousand. He had done incredible things. It still wasn't enough. It would be enough? Well, for some, uh, all the, you know, endless miracles would never be enough. Uh, verse thirty-two to thirty-six. Uh, when the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, "I will be with you only a little longer." and I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but will not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going? Um... You know, they're basing their judgment on, on, uh, on ideas they have about Jesus. These ideas come from things Jesus says that they totally misunderstand. Jesus was talking here about going back to heaven. He says, I'm leaving. And interestingly, the leaders who were trying to kill him should have got the connection there. But Jesus was saying, you know, I know you're about to kill me. And when I do, I won't be here and you can't find me. But that goes right by them.
1: And then, so, is he going to you go
0: know, preach to the Greeks? Is he going to Rome? What, what does this mean? So they're trying to make judgments based on what he says, but they, over and over again, misunderstand his, his sayings. And it goes right over their head. Uh, verse 40, 40 through 44. Uh, when the crowds heard Jesus say these things, some of them declare, Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, no, he's the Messiah. Others said, but he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah came from Galilee. For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some, Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. Okay, here they think they know things about Jesus. Uh, it's interesting even this, though their knowledge
1: is limited and in some points
0: even wrong. They say, you know, we know, and and the Bible says says clearly that the Messiah will come from the line of David and will be born in Bethlehem. Jesus comes from Galilee. Those of us who know the whole story go, hello, you know, he came from, he was born in Bethlehem. We know this part. And, And John is writing all this trying to, to set us up to, to be kind of in the, in the stands, uh, looking on as they're saying these things, going, oh, you guys are so dumb, right? That's, 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 the, that's, that's what's happening here. And we read this and we go, but he is from Bethlehem. He's not really from Galilee. He just for, he was born. He is from the line of David, right? And we know this and we go, you guys are trying to figure this out, but there are huge holes in what you know. You don't get it because you don't really know all the facts. And so you're trying to make this decision based on human reasoning but you can't because you don't have all the information. Your knowledge is limited and skewed and flawed. Uh, finally, in the last section, uh, the civil guards return. They've gone to arrest him. Uh, they come back to the, the priests and the leaders and they, so they return without having arrested Jesus. And the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, where is he? Why didn't you bring him in? And they said, we have never heard anyone speak like this. The guards responded. The Pharisees mocked, have you been led astray too? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? Because this foolish crowd follows him. They are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Okay, Here's an interesting statement. It said, if you're ignorant of the law, God's curse is on you. If you don't know the Bible, if you don't have your theology worked out, curses you. Okay, if you're not smart like us, right? Okay.
1: Then they continue
0: on in their smartness. But Jesus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before we have heard him? Shouldn't we hear what he has to say? And they reply, Are you from Galilee too? the Scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Uh, they're smart. They know their Bible right inside and out. They've got this figured out. And anybody who doesn't know the Bible like they should, like they do, is what cursed. Right? If you don't know your Bible, if you don't, if you're not smart enough to figure this out and know your theology, know your doctrine, know your Bible, you are cursed. That's their, that's their, their judgment. Well, they should have followed their own advice. If you search the scriptures, in Isaiah chapter 9, it says this. Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with... With glory, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Okay, who doesn't know their Bible? Now, who should have searched the scriptures and read what was plainly written in Isaiah about Galilee? Who would come from Galilee? Well, the glory of God would shine there, and the light would shine there to be a light to all those living in darkness. Ooh, they they missed that one. So they don't know their Bible, they don't know their theology. What does that say about them? By their own judgment. They are cursed. Cursed. And you see, the problem is, uh, when we try to discern Jesus, uh, when we try to figure out Jesus and decide on him first and foremost based on human reasoning and logic, will always fail. And the reason is we cannot know enough. The crowds, the Pharisees, the leaders, all these people are trying to figure out Jesus based on what they know. The problem is they don't know enough. Interestingly, they are trying to figure it out based on what they know apart from, outside of just talking with Jesus. Exploring and figure, you know, hearing what he has to say about himself. Nicodemus tries to pipe in, you know, well, you know, should we at least hear what he has to say? No. They've already made up their mind. They don't need to hear Jesus' testimony about himself. Interestingly, I, uh, I'll go back. Uh, earlier on, Jesus, uh, as they're working with him because so they think they know where he's come from. Jesus says to himself, Yes, you know me. In other words, you know I'm Jesus. I know where I come from, that I come from Galilee. But I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. I know him because I come from him and he sent me to you. Jesus never had a doubt about who he was or where he came from. Okay, Jesus never, like many prophets, like all the prophets and great men of old, Jesus never had to go out and sit under a bow tree to seek and discover truth about himself in God's revelation. Unlike another Indian chap who many years ago went out and sat under a bow tree and tried to figure out the universe and contemplate it because he didn't know the answer. And he had to sit there and meditate until he almost died, until he figured it out. Jesus never had to do that. Jesus knew where he came from. And he had first hand encounter and experience with the God of the universe who sent him. So Jesus was never in the dark about who he was. He was always very clear and direct and forward about where he came from, who he was. He wasn't like Muhammad, who had to go into a cave for many, many days and meditate until he got the revelation from God, and started to figure it out. Jesus never had to do that. He always knew clearly and exactly who he was. And for those who asked him, he could tell them clearly who he was and where he came from. Uh, but human knowledge falls short. Uh, the reality is we're not as smart as we think we are. Uh, our leaders are not as smart as we think they are. Uh, we have the wrong idea about too many things. Uh, too much of their knowledge is filtered or biased, okay? Kind of like, you know, when you look at, you have weird colored sunglasses, it makes, I just once I was wearing these really odd colored sunglasses and I thought somebody was wearing a pink shirt. I took the glasses off and it was actually a blue shirt, you know, so I could think differently about them because, you know, the whole pink shirt thing made me nervous. But it was my sunglasses. See, I was looking at them wrongly, because of the and see, that's what they were doing. They were looking through preconceived ideas that filtered how they saw everything. You see, that's why it's flawed if we seek to know God, know Jesus, figure it out, based on human logic and reason.
1: So the question is, well, how can we decide about
0: Jesus? If we can't figure him out through logic, through our uh, brains, through thinking, then how do we figure Jesus out? Well, Jesus gives the answer himself. Okay, and this is where we need to get back to our, our whole ceremony. we read the ceremony. There's the whole water-pouring thing. Uh, it says in verse uh, 37, On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowd. So this was the day. It's possible that they did this water-pouring ceremony more than once. But for sure we know they did it on the last day. Uh they did it about 10 o'clock in the morning. So it's very, very likely, very, very possible that, that just shortly after this whole ceremony, after, after this pouring out of the water, this whole parade and procession, this whole big deal, Jesus stands up in the temple and he says this, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me and anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he had said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered his glory. Uh, Can you imagine the power of those words after all this just happened in the temple? And Jesus stands up and he says, if you are thirsty, come to me. And anyone believing can drink, and and there will be a river flowing out of their heart. Uh, First of all, this was, for Jesus, an incredible claim of who he was. Uh, If the religious leaders wanted to kill him before, I can guarantee they wanted to kill him now. Because this is an out-and-out claim to be uh, God's sustaining rock uh, out of which the water flows. Uh, but before we get to that, what, uh, what Jesus, I think, is saying here is look, you're trying to figure this all out. You're trying to deduce me logically. You're trying to apply all your reason and all your limited knowledge to figure me out. I have a better idea. Come and take a drink. You know, it's just that attempt. You want to figure out me? Come and taste. Come and see. Come and drink. Because that's the only way you can really know who I am. I really believe Jesus is saying here, the only way of knowing for sure who I am is through experiencing me firsthand. Otherwise, you can never really have a true and complete knowledge of me. Um, It kind of goes like this. There are two kinds of knowledge in the world. There is a knowledge we can get through books and through information. And there is another kind of knowledge we can get through experience. Just to imagine, suppose we... uh, we got all excited about climbing mountains. It could be any mountain, you can pick your mountain, Mount Everest or some mountain you know. And you decide, man, I, I love this mountain, it's a beautiful mountain, I wanna climb this mountain. And so you, you go to the store and you buy maps, you buy trail guides, you buy you know, all information. You get on the internet, the internet and you find all the information that you can about this mountain. After studying it and researching it, it's true that you will know a lot of facts and information about this mountain. You'll know how high it is. You could study those maps until you've memorized those maps. You could study the routes. You could read how other people have climbed it. You could read their stories, how they experienced the mountain. Okay? You could spend your whole life experiencing the mountain only through that that avenue, through the knowledge and experience of others. Uh, that's what they were trying to do. Uh, sadly, that's what a lot of Christians try to do. They try to experience know God and know Christ only through the map, only through the written records of others who climbed the mountain, only through others who have been to the top. Uh, and that is a kind of knowledge is very limited and flawed knowledge. Or we could do something radical. We could get our backpack on and our hiking boots, and we could actually go out there and climb the mountain, walk around the mountain, walk on the mountain, uh, experience it firsthand. And if we were to do that, um, all the information that we gathered may be helpful. Uh, in fact, it may keep us from killing ourselves. And there's a lot of mountains that you can't climb unless you have good maps and other people's experience and other people guiding us on that mountain. So that very helpful as we as we experience the mountain on our own it to keep us from getting lost and sidetracked and derailed and taking wrong turns. This is something that we would learn and discover as we climb the mountain
1: that we would
0: never have got from all the books in the world. And that is what it smells like to have the breeze uh, blowing off that mountain, to hear the waterfalls tumbling down off that mountain. To, to experience the sensations of being in that place, to encounter firsthand the wonder of that mountain. And, you know, eventually we get to the top, and there's no book or, or picture in the world that can, that can give you the view you get live and in person standing on top of the mountain. I think every person in the world needs to climb at least one good mountain. Because there is nothing like standing on top and seeing this view before you of the of the world from on top of the mountain, and that's something you can only gain through what? Through firsthand personal encounter. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, "Look, your knowledge is good, but it's only good if you take the journey of personal experience." I'm not saying that we should throw out knowledge, that we should throw out information. In fact, that stuff is vital. But it only is meaningful if we are on the journey of experiencing Christ. Uh, the Bible is a great book. Theology is great things. Thinking is important. Okay, I would recommend it. Um, even sometimes when it's painful. It's a good thing to do. But it should be something that comes alongside of an encounter with God. which Jesus invited to two was not an outside distant knowledge through books and information, but through a living dynamic encounter with him in the flesh. He says, come and drink. And he breaks it down into three, well, simple, four simple things. He says, first of all, come. Uh, he invites us uh, by his let me back up actually before he says come he says is anyone thirsty before he even says come he says is anyone thirsty is anyone thirsty probably that's the real starting point Uh, are we even aware of the empty thirsty condition of our soul see all these people are trying to figure all this out all these leaders are so bent on killing him that they would have only stopped for a moment and thought about The dry, uh, empty, broken condition of their own soul. The reality is that a lot of times people uh, pursue reason and logic and intellect and arguing for the very reason of avoiding facing their own soul. Because it's so much easier to ask accusing questions towards other things than to ask one question that really matters most. The question... What is my inside like? What is the state of my inner being? Uh, it says Jesus says that you, you know, when when you come and drink, it will become a river gushing out of your heart. Literally, uh, if we were to translate this literally, it would be it becomes a river of water gushing out of your guts. Okay, it's probably good the they cleaned it up a bit. Uh, it's not quite as poetic. And actually, in, in this time that it come to really represent the soul or the deepest innermost parts of a man's being there's really a picture of our soul Um, one of the most important questions we need to ask ourselves uh, and really the starting point of any encounter with Christ is what is the condition of my soul until Christ has come in every soul is broken and empty and thirsty for God that's where it must begin uh, if we are to encounter Christ, if we are to grow in our experience with Him, we must start there by coming to grips with the, the condition of our soul. Thankfully, as believers, when Christ comes, He starts to fill us. Uh, but there's, it's a long process. You know, He fills us and it becomes a river. But there's a lot of places you know, you've never irrigated something. You know, water can't go uphill. The task of irrigating is getting the water to all those dry places. That's kind of how our soul is. You know, it's a lifelong process of directing that water to areas of our life that need to come under his rich and of blessing and grace. But we've got to start with assessing that. The inner condition of our being. He says, if you're thirsty, Uh, then come. Come. Come to me. Uh, It's a great invitation Available and open to every human being to come to him.
1: And then he says,
0: um, he says, you have to believe. He says, come, and if you believe, you may drink. Now, for some of you who are thinkers and who are thinking this through putting the logical pieces together, you're going, aha, there's a flaw here. Because you said we could know him by coming. But we have to believe before we can know. That's not fair. Okay? Well, it's true. It's not fair. And it's kind of a lame deal. Okay? Because a lot of us want to know first and then believe. We want to have all the answers figured out first, and then we'll commit to something. Right? Well, it doesn't work that way.
1: And that's why Jesus said
0: in other places, in other places in the Gospels, that you must come as a child. You cannot come into the kingdom of God unless you come and have the faith of a child. A child doesn't believe because they have everything figured out.
1: They just believe in you because you're bigger than them. And for them, that's enough,
0: okay? Thankfully, our kids don't come to us and go, you know, I was looking at your tax report this year. It's making me a little nervous, you know. I'm not sure I can count on you, Mom and Dad. to take care of me. You know, the support's going down, the bot's going up. I'm a little nervous, you know. Ah, uh, what are we gonna do about this? Well, they don't do that. They know you're bigger, they they know that like you know, you money just comes, you, you're an endless supply of money. I don't care where it comes from, They believe in you, right? Okay, how so students doesn't exist your parents, just have an endless flow. Mom, Dad, there it is, it's great. You don't have to have it figured out. You just believe. Well there's a sense in which that's what we must do with Christ. We must come to him and believe that He is who He says. He has declared and proclaimed fully and completely and disclosed fully who He is. Uh, We must look at the condition of our soul, look at all that He claimed He was and promised to do, and say, He is the only thing that can meet that dry, broken, desperate condition of my soul. He is the wellspring of life. And in coming by faith, we can drink from him. And he says, he will come in and fill us with himself. Uh, And then we can drink. Uh, We can drink him in. Uh, He says, and John gives a little side note, that by the way, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says. Um, Christ did come. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. When we come to him in faith, the Holy Spirit fills our life. And he wants to be... A never ending river flowing and filling up our life. Uh, it's, it's never ending. In other words, it's not like the cloister came for a day and there was this great downpour and you know, it's trickled up and now it's just a tiny little trickle. It is a never ending, gushing flow coming out from within us, filling our life. It's always there. He is always available to drink and to fill us. That doesn't mean we always go drink. The fact is, there's a lot of things in my own life. That river just passes right by. And I'm thirsty and maybe dying of thirst. And I never stop and drink. Okay? Because the river's there doesn't mean we're drinking. We have to stop day by day and drink of His presence. Allow His Spirit to nurture us, to sustain us, to be life for us. And thankfully, what a great example Israel is. That when they were rebellious, when they were sinful, when they worshiped the idols. They made a golden calf. Yet in spite of all that, what did God do? He was living water for them. He sustained them. He provided. Praise God it's by His grace. No matter how much we sin, fail, mess up, do stupid things, yet His river is constantly flowing. We just need to go and drink. And then, then, uh, As we encounter and experience Christ, he becomes real. The only way we can really know Jesus is to taste and drink him, is to have him fill us with his his own being. And then all this information, all this knowledge, all this thinking will be guided and directed by his spirit. And he will guide us into fuller knowledge and understanding of who he is. And the greatest thing of all is that he promises us that we can meet him personally and encounter him in an experience. You know, we can stand on the mountain and have this view of God's glory and presence. And that mountain is Christ. Or to put it another way, you know, he's claiming here, look, there was a rock in the Old Testament that poured out this never-ending flow. The resource of God. He says, I am that rock. What he's saying here? I am the rock. I am the ultimate source. And I invite you to come to me and to encounter me, and to taste, to experience my presence in your life. That's what he calls us to. That's what he called them to. And of course, they uh, they were unwilling. Uh, We're going to worship God now, and and in communion, we will do that. We're going to sing a couple songs, and then we'll move into communion. Uh, I invite you. What a great picture and symbol of tasting, of drinking in, Jesus. And as we do that, just in your soul, open up your soul before God and say, God, I want you to fill my soul with your presence. Meet with me this morning. Meet with me today. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to celebrate you. Uh, Awesome that the Jews had such great feasts. Seven and eight days of celebration, of singing and dancing, of praising you for your great love and faithfulness. Of giving thanks Lord God we come this morning to give thanks for the fountain of life that was poured out on the cross through the very blood of Jesus even now as we uh, prepare to take this cup and this bread these reminders of his life giving flow Lord Jesus we ask you to, to come to our, our hearts and fill us with yourself Lord Jesus, we need to experience you, and encounter you in the depths of our being. And to drink of your presence. Lord, help us do that this morning as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at ww.ctst dot org